Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Europe. Today is Sunday, November 30th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today we're um, once again accompanied by our co-host here, Sven Longshanks, and we plan on talking about the Phoenicians, a matter which should be dear to Sven's heart because it can be demonstrated that the Phoenicians had mined tin in Wales and Cornwall and made settlements in, in that area of what I'll call Britain at the earliest times, and this can certainly be established in history. It is my belief that they were also the original settlers of what we know as Britain, along with other tribes from the continent, and also Ireland as well. So let me introduce Sven and say hello to him. Hello, Sven. How are you doing? Hello, Bill. Yeah, I'm uh, pretty well, thanks. Uh, I'm hoping people can hear me a lot better today. I've got uh, a new microphone and some new software and hopefully the issues that we've had with, with sound will now be cleared up. And um, I've just got to remember to keep close to the microphone because I had a, a tie clip microphone before and then these headphone ones and, and now I've got like a, a proper microphone to talk into. So I'm hoping that uh, all the sound problems will now be gone and people will be able to hear what I'm saying clearly without having to um, keep re-editing and sound engineering the recordings and, and messing around like that because I know that was awkward for people so uh, hopefully the problems now will all be cleared up and people will be able to hear what I'm saying. Well, well right. It's, you sound a lot better and a lot clearer and, and there's no more muffly sound so hopefully that's gone. I've suffered um, from poor quality equipment myself plenty in the past and that, that's just what happens when you're not working with the budget of a large corporation and have endless dollars to spend on resources like the June media does. So what well, we have a constant struggle, but that's okay. We, we will accomplish our task. I want to discuss the um the Phoenicians and, and in relation to Cornwall and Wales especially, it, it's um Incredibly important that people who who um who are interested in the European heritage understand this subject. I'm going to read from Herodotus from the Histories from Book Three, Paragraph One Fifteen. This is George Rawlinson's translation of the extreme tracts of Europe towards the West. I cannot speak with any certainty. Herodotus writing about 440 B.C. For I do not allow that there is any river to which the barbarians give the name of Eridanus, emptying itself into the northern sea, whence, as the tale goes, amber is procured. Nor do I know of any islands called the the Cassiterides, the Tin Islands is what that would mean, Whence the tin comes which we use. For in the first place, the name Eridanus is manifestly not a barbarian word at all, but a Greek name invented by some poet or other. And secondly, though I have taken vast pains, I have never been able to get 
an assurance from an eyewitness that there is any sea on the further side of Europe. Nevertheless, tin and amber do certainly come to us from the ends of the earth. And of course, Herodotus had testified elsewhere that he didn't know of any people north of the Danube, except for certain colonists of the Medes, as he calls them, and that's another matter entirely. We are going to offer George Rawlinson's comments upon this passage after we read a paragraph from Strabo, who was writing towards the very time of the birth of Christ. Strabo died in 25 AD, it is believed. Herodotus was writing 450 to 440 BC, 450 years before Strabo. And Strabo's Geography, Book 3, Chapter 5, Paragraph 11, the geographer says, The Cassiterides are ten in number and lie near each other in the ocean towards the north from the haven of the Artabri. Now, according to Strabo, elsewhere in his geography, the Artabri were an ancient Celtic tribe living in what we now know as the extreme northwest of Iberia, of, of Portugal, actually, the extreme, the extreme north, or the extreme northwest of the Iberian Peninsula, at the far northwest corner of Iberia. That's where Strabo placed these people. And he says, the Cassiterides are ten in number and lie near to each other in the ocean towards the north from the haven of the Artabri. One of them is desert, but the others are inhabited by men in black cloaks, clad in tunics reaching to the feet, girt about the breast, and walking with staves, thus resembling the furies we see in tragic representations. They subsist by their cattle, leading, for the most part, a wandering life. Of the metals, they have tin and lead, which with skins they barter with the merchants for earthenware, salt, and brazen vessels. Formerly, the Phoenicians alone carried on this traffic from Gadiz, or Gadez, and it's a um, famous ancient Phoenician settlement, on a peninsula on the Atlantic coast of Spain, of modern Portugal, I should say, concealing the passage from everyone. The Phoenicians wouldn't let anyone else know where they got their tin and know where they got their tin from, their tin and other ores they mined, their lead. And when the Romans followed a certain shipmaster, that they also might find the market, meaning the place where the Bretons were selling this metal. The shipmaster of jealousy purposely ran his vessel upon a shoal, leading on those who followed him into the same destructive disaster. He himself escaped by means of a fragment of the ship, and received from the state the value of the cargo that he had lost, the state at this time being Carthage. The Romans, nevertheless, by frequent efforts, discovered the passage, 
And as soon as Publius Crassus, passing over to them, perceived that the metals were dug out at a little depth, meaning they were easy to mine, and that the men were peaceably disposed, he declared it to those who already wished to traffic in the sea for profit, although the passage was longer than that to Britain, thus far concerning Iberia and the adjacent islands. Now, Strabo makes reference to Publius Crassus, who lived during the times of the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage, which consisted of three great war, wars fought from 246 down to 188 BC. Now, according to Livy and the history of Rome, the Romans were not really sailors at all, and they had no military navy whatsoever before the Punic Wars were fought. It was out of their necessity to wage the wars with the Phoenicians that through much trial and error, as Livy explains at great length, the Romans developed a navy and the skills required to fight with the Phoenicians at sea. So they were relatively new to sailing when the Punic Wars were being fought. The, um, the Phoenicians had ruled, as the Greeks often recount, had ruled the Western Seas for many centuries. And the Greeks were basically, to a great extent, shut off from anything west of Sicily for many centuries. The, the Phocians had managed a settlement at Marseille, but that's about as far west as the Greeks had established any successful colonies. For many centuries, because of the strength of the Phoenicians and their hold on the western Mediterranean. When the Punic Wars were fought, however, that opened up passage to the Atlantic Ocean and points beyond to the Greeks and the Romans. Many commentators and historians simply take it for granted that the Greek name Cassiterides or Tin Islands, as they would be, as the name would be translated, applied to the islands which are now known as the Scilly Islands, which are actually somewhat west of Cornwall. However, the Scilly Islands are not 10 in number, they are 27 in number, if we want to count the individual land masses which qualify as islands in that group, there are hundreds of small islets and rocks sticking out of the sea that, that, that are mixed in with these 27 islands. Furthermore, the route from the home of the Artabri in northwestern Iberia to the Scilly Islands is much shorter than the route to Britain and certainly not longer as Strabo describes here. Therefore, I have always rejected the notion that the Cassiterides are the Scilly Islands and do not even mention them in my essay on the Phoenicians, which asserts that the Cassiterides are Wales and Cornwall. Although I have discussed the Scilly Islands elsewhere, I cannot prove it, but I do believe that the Scilly Islands are the place where this Phoenician sea captain, who is described in this account by Strabo, 
ran his boat onto the rocks rather than circumnavigating them to reach some point in Wales, north of them, and around the northern side of the peninsula called Cornwall today. The Cassiterides, with absolute certainty, are the promontories and islands of Wales, and especially of Cornwall, the Greeks not being entirely familiar with the coastline. I'm going to read some notes from George Rawlinson in relation to Herodotus's mention of the Eridanus and the Amber trade into the Greco-Roman world and of the Cassiterides or Tin Islands. And these notes are found in Rawlinson's translation of the passage from Herodotus, which we had just opened with today. And first, let me say about George Rawlinson. He was an Anglican canon, a high-ranking Anglican priest. His brother was Sir Henry Rawlinson, who was the, the man who actually transcribed and translated the famous Behistun rock found in Iran and, and in ancient Persia and many other wonderful monuments of antiquity. These were both highly learned men. Um, I think, off the top of my head, that George Rawlinson's translation of Herodotus was made probably around 1870 or 1880. So these men lived in the middle of the 19th century. In that great era of discovery, which was... Um, enabled by the spread of the British Empire and the great era of learning, the dawn of the archaeological science and, and things like that, which came out of the, for better or worse, the spread of the British Empire into the um, non-white nations, or I should say, no longer white nations. So George Rawlinson, on the mention of the Eridanus and the Amber trade, says, here Herodotus is overcautious and rejects as fable what we concede to be truth. The Amber district upon the northern sea is the coast of the Baltic about the Gulf of Danzig and the mouths of the Vistula and Neiman, meaning the rivers, which is still one of the best amber regions in the world. The very name, Eridanus, lingers there in the Rodon, the small stream which washes the west side of the town of Danzig. The word Eridanus, which he equates to Rodonus, seems to have been applied by the early inhabitants of Europe to great and strong running rivers. And there are other explanations, but that was what Rawlinson conjectured, and that's fine. Now, Rawlinson's note on the, on the mention by Herodotus of the Cassiterides, or Tin Islands. This name was applied to the Selene, or Skilly Islands, and the imperfect information received the site of the mines of tin led to the belief by later scholars that they were there instead of on the mainland of Cornwall, where they really were. 
So Rawlinson understood what most scholars before him did not, that the Cassiterides were Wales and Cornwall and not the Scilly Islands. However, the error today prevails in mainstream academia that the Scilly Islands are the tin islands of the Greeks and the Phoenicians, and we will see how wrong that is from a website that I'm about to that I'm about to quote from, which discusses the geology of the Scilly Islands and compares them to nearby Cornwall. The name of the site is naturalhistoryofskilly.info. And I'm going, to, I'm going to quote one paragraph from that website, and I will put the link to this website and the paragraph with this podcast when we post it later on this afternoon, Yahweh willing. Minerals in the granite. The Scilly Islands consist of great amounts of granite. The Scillonian granite you see now is a few kilometers underground when it's solidified, a process which took millions of years. The chemical composition of the granite shows that it was formed from rocks that melted deep in the Earth's crust while still molten. The cooling granite was stressed by earth movements, leading to flow and alignment of early formed crystals in the granite. Similar movements after it had solidified made cracks in joints. These cracks have since been exploited by weathering and erosion, forming this spectacular tors. Tor is actually a Hebrew word that made it into English. It, it was an English word as well. It, it means a high, craggy rock or a high, craggy, rocky point in land. And it's from the same Hebrew word that the word Tyre comes from, the rock in the sea upon which a great famous city was built, forming this spectacular tour seen around the islands. In some places, minerals crystallized out from fluids injected into the cracks. Over much of Cornwall, these fluids contain commercially valuable metals, such as tin and copper. The skilly pluton is unusual, as it seems to lack these metal ores. But it does have veins of white quartz and black fibrous tourmaline. There is no tin in the skilly islands. Strabo said that in the Cassiterides, the tin was easy to find because it was not very deep under the ground. The Skilly Islands are granite. You're not getting very deep under the ground, and there's no tin there. It has veins of white quartz and black fibrous tourmaline. Even checking Wikipedia, which I like to use Wikipedia once in a while to indicate how easily obtainable certain facts are and how well-known they are. Wikipedia isn't right about everything, of course, and usually it lies by omission. But here, under the entry Mining in Cornwall and Devon, which is an actual entry of Wikipedia, one may see that there is plenty of tin in Cornwall and evidence that it was mined throughout the second millennium B.C., they are archaeological facts 
that not even Wikipedia could ever deny. The um, Greek and Roman records also indicate that they are historical facts relating directly to the Phoenicians. In book four of his histories, Herodotus is writing about a period much earlier than his own, even predating the Trojan War. Now, the Trojan War, according to very explicit Greek letters, Greek writings, such as those of Thucydides, who was one of those exacting clerical historians, the Trojan Wars happened from about 1200 to about 1180 B.C. in there. And Herodotus, writing about a period even predating the Trojan War, where he is discussing the settlement, the legendary settlement of various islands around Greece and elsewhere in the Mediterranean by the Phoenicians, and especially the island called Serra, which is somewhat north of Crete at the, in, in the agency, describing a certain voyage undertaken by a man called Corobius. Herodotus says the storm, not abating, a, a storm which occurred during the voyage of this man and his crew, the storm not abating, they were driven past the pillars of Heracles, and at last, by some special guiding providence, reached Tarsus. This trading town, which we now see Herodotus imagined to be past the pillars of Heracles or out in the Atlantic Ocean. This trading town was in those days a virgin port unfrequented by the merchants. The Trojan War was 200 years before King Solomon's ships. So Herodotus very well has been correct. Surely Herodotus is calling Tarsus a trading town. Illuminates the scriptural record in the Greek-English lexicon of Liddell and Scott. Tarsus, the Greek Tarsus, is readily identified as the Tarshish of scripture. Herodotus believed the island Terra which he's describing in that very same part of his book, to have been settled by Phoenicians not long before the Trojan War. And from geology, and, and this is readily available on the Internet, from geology we know that Serra, which is also called Santorini, had been completely destroyed in the middle of the second millennium B.C., by a massive volcanic explosion. The explosion is sometimes called the Minoan eruption, sometimes it's called the Serra eruption, sometimes it's called the Santorini eruption. I guess scholars can't make their minds up. And that eruption happened around the very same time as the Hebrew Exodus. That eruption was as many 
as four times greater than the famous recent, relatively recent, because it was in the 1880s, eruption at Krakatoa. The Phoenicians who settled Terra must therefore have found it empty, and they must also be those same people who were inhabiting the coast of Phoenicia at the time when it was habited, inhabited by the Israelites of the Bible, according to Scripture. The understanding of all this begins with the Israelite conquest of Canaan, which included the conquest of Sidon and the, the mainland city called Utu, which the Bible calls Tyre, as well as the island city of Tyre. But the island city of Tyre was not built until about a century and a half before the Trojan War. It was found vacant by the children of Israel and archaeology supports that. Josephus attests that the island city of Tyre was built 240 years before Solomon's temple. The understanding of the Phoenician settlement of the Mediterranean begins with the understanding of Scripture and the ships of Tarshish of kings Hiram and Solomon which were not new by any means at Solomon's time. Herodotus imagined Tarsus or Tarshish to be outside of the pillars of Heracles, which brings us to the Atlantic coast of Spain. Therein also lies the beginnings of the Phoenician settlement of Cornwall, Britain, and Ireland. With that, we will turn it over to Sven and see if he has any comments. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating, Bill. There's a lot, a lot of stuff there that um, I wasn't aware of. Um, I'd just say there's, there's so much tin in Cornwall that it's actually on the on the flag, on the Cornish flag. It's uh, a white cross on a black background, and that's supposed to be the um, white tin, shiny tin, on the black earth. And the, the place is just full of... Um, mine workings and uh, and traces from from when they used to do all the mining there and it's, it's quite interesting some of the names that, that they have like the actual mine workings themselves they're called jews houses and obviously back then when they were used the people that were um doing the mining they weren't they weren't called jews i mean that, that's a modern name but uh, it's obviously become transformed over the years to become known as, as Jews' houses. So you've got a, a trace of, of Judah. There's a, a village there that's called Boajan, which means abode of Judah. Um, there's Trejuag, Trey is um, a village, uh, Jurag, the village of the Jews. Um, there's names all to do with um, the actual tin itself, like uh, Jews' leavings, Jews' tin. Obviously, I said the um, Jews' houses because it, 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 the the whole uh, tin trade was was Phoenician. It was Phoenician Hebrew. It, it was uh, Hebrew settlers. And to go back to where you said about Britain first being settled by the Phoenicians, it actually says in the in the Chronicles of England before um, Brutus the Trojan came to came to Britain. Um, there was a, a king in Syria, and he sent his daughters to to Britain, and they named it Albion, 
but they originally came from Syria, and that's where we get the name of the county Surrey from, which is descended from the word Syria. Uh, also, we've got uh, lots of coins that have been found, Phoenician coins that have been found all around Britain. And just one of the interesting things about these coins is that most of them have got the, the pillars of Heracles on them. So they've actually got these, these pillars of Heracles on there. So they're sort of symbolizing that. It was obviously, that was important. It was getting out through between them and to make it to, uh, to, make it to Britain. And I think there's a, a lot of confusion with the Phoenicians because the established way of looking at it is that the Phoenicians were, were Canaanites. But, and that's because it's obviously it's, a, it's the same area, but there's been different people that have been living there. But the whole of the Phoenician Golden Age took place after the Canaanites had been removed. And they, they weren't really aware of this at the time of um, translating the Bible. But a, a while back, a century or so back, they, they dug up um, these clay letters from a mound called the Armana Tablets. It's from um, uh, a place called Tel El Armana, which was the old uh, town of Armana. And these clay letters have been dated to uh, 1360 to 13. 30 BC, and they're personal letters that were written to Amenophis IV, who is also known as Akhenaten, or, or the heretic pharaoh. And, and these letters, they're not monumental inscriptions that were written by a king boasting of, it, of what he'd managed to achieve, but these were personal letters that were asking for help from the pharaoh because the people were being attacked. So, and these were the, the Canaanite, um, the Canaanite area. And basically, you've got the leader of Sidon in some of these letters. So his name is Jim Reader, and he's he's writing to Pharaoh Akhenaten, and uh, I have a quote here: "Behold, all my cities which the king has given unto my hands have fallen into the hands of the Hibiri, and the Hibiri is uh, very close to the Hibiru or Hebrew." But in, also in these letters, as well as calling them Habiri, they also call them Saga, which is the same word as Saka on the Behistun Rock, which you were talking about earlier from um, Rawlinson that, that translated the Behistun Rock. So we've got a direct confirmation that the people that took over the Canaanite cities were the Saka, were the Hebrews, were the same people as the Scythians on the Behistun Rock and the, and the Gemiri or the Gomri that later on became the Qumri that we again we see from this Behistun Rock. They were all the same, all the same people and they, they, they took Sidon in, at that time. So that's 1360 to 1330 BC. And of course it's after this that you hear of um, Solomon building his temple with the help of the people from Tyre. And I always thought, well, you know, were these people Israelites? Were they not? But it's obvious that, they, that Tyre and Sidon had been taken by the Israelites. So there would have been Israelite people there. So when it talks of um, Hiram, uh, the builder of Solomon's temple, and his mother was a, a daughter of Dan, and it says, and his father was a man of Tyre, his father would have been a, a son of Dan as well. He just would have been living in, in Tyre. Well, let, let, uh, let, let me comment on that. On that yeah. 
in, in, the, in, in the scripture, when David conducted his census, he sent his people to Sidon to count the Israelites there. Sidon is mentioned explicitly, and Tyre, as you mentioned, was founded by Israelites. There's no doubt. Josephus talks about it at length. And when Herodotus talks about the Phoenician founding of colonies in the Mediterranean, Herodotus doesn't mention Sidon in that context. He says that it was Tyre, which was the, the, the mother city of all these Phoenician colonies. Now, Sidon... In, in the book of Judges, is one place where Canaanites were left, and those Canaanites later vexed the Israelites who dwelt alongside them rather than running them out. However, there are no Canaanites left entire after the conquest by Joshua's Israelites. And, and I'm not saying there were never any Canaanites entire because we understand that the merchants kind of weasel their way in everywhere. But Tyre began as a solely Israelite city, there should be no doubt, from the scriptural record. Oh, that's, that's, in, that's interesting, it, it, because in, uh, in Sidon, one of the letters that this, this ruler of Sidon is writing, his great fear is that they'll have to leave, because otherwise they will be turned into slaves. And obviously the Bible records that they didn't wipe out all the Canaanites, they did use some of them as slaves, and that, that did come back He'd come back to the boy at them. And there are other letters where they're writing to the Pharaoh and he says, look, they're, they're going to wipe us all out. They will kill all of us and they're hostile to you. So he's hostile to the, the Hebrews themselves were, were hostile to the Egyptian Pharaoh at the time. But he just refused to come out and defend the Canaanites, saying that these they were um, tributary to Egypt, they, they paid um, fealties and homage to Egypt and they expected um, Egypt to come and rescue them, but this pharaoh wanted nothing to do with it. He didn't send out anyone to fight against the Hebrews, and I mean, it wouldn't have been that far back that um, the exodus happened when, when Egypt had all of these plagues, so I wonder if it, it, it wasn't something to do with that that um, made this pharaoh wary of going out to attack the Israelites. Uh, I'm at sort of a disadvantage because I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of relocating and my library is still packed. However, it could be established from the Amarna letters that the Amarna letters, even though they are a wide collection of letters, would have to do with, which have to do a lot with other topics as well. Many of the Amarna letters are indeed written to the pharaoh Akhenaten, who, who um, basically ignored them, and they did contain pleas from the various vassal Canaanite cities. They were vassals to Egypt and their kings to help defend them against the invading Apiru or Apiru. Now, the Apiru Many um, archaeologists, especially those who doubt the veracity of Scripture, the Apiru are said to have been a class of slaves. And I would assert that the Amarna letters do indeed have that attitude. 
But that only verifies Scripture. It does not refute Scripture because the Hebrews would have been considered slaves by Canaanite kings loyal to Egypt because the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt. Now, in support of that assertion that the Apiru were actually the Hebrews, there are other inscriptions from Syria and northern Mesopotamia which also also mention tribes of Abiru, which are just as old, if not older, than the Amarna letters, where it's very clear that the Abiru are a tribe and can be directly related to the people we know as Hebrews, even though we have to understand that the Hebrews of the northern Mesopotamian inscriptions are not the Israelites because Abraham was only one Hebrew out of an entire tribe. Those other inscriptions refer to other Hebrews. So, so the, the, the Amarna letters are certainly referring to the Hebrews of the Exodus, no doubt, and, and the conquest of Canaan. And it, um, uh, it was after that that uh, the, the great golden age of, of Phoenicia happened, which the historians try and credit to the Canaanites. So none of that happened until after this, this conquest of, of Canaan. Uh, it's after 1200 um, BC that you get the, the first evidence of a, a, a major trade between Egypt, Cyprus, and Greek. And then you get the, the uh, Paleo-Hebrew alphabet um, in about one, um, 1000 BC. And it's from that Paleo-Hebrew alphabet that we then get, you know, we have words in English, we have words in Welsh, I know there are words in, in the other European languages that come from this Paleo-Hebrew alphabet. And I, I was looking at um, the uh, original alphabet from the Vinca culture, which is supposed to be the oldest culture in Europe, and it's almost exactly the same as Paleo-Hebrew, and they call this Paleo-Hebrew, they call it um, Phoenicia. So the, the historians and the phrenologists will say, well, a lot of our alphabet goes back to this Phoenician. But this Phoenician alphabet is called Phoenician. They didn't appear until after the Israelites had taken Canaan. And then they brought that alphabet with them where they went. They were the ones that developed this alphabet. They weren't, they weren't Canaanite, and it came from the... the um, Phoenician Empire, but it was an Israelite. It was an Israelite empire. They, they were the Israelite people. That, that's well, well, why they were, you know, they were so blessed and and good at what they did. Let me say that all of the inscriptions in in um on the coasts of what we now know as Phoenicia, right? Because Phoenicia was various things at various times, and each time frame has to be understood in order to understand the context of the term. However, before the, um, before the Israelite conquest of, of the land of Canaan, there was no Phoenicia. There was no Phoenicia in the period of the Chronicles and the kings of Israel. There was no Phoenicia simply because there was no Greek writing. There was no Greek writing existent until 
the, the seventh century BC. We don't have, and when I say Greek writing, I don't mean inscriptions. I mean historical narratives or poetry or anything like that that records facts and events. The word Phoenicia doesn't appear until Greek writing appears in the seventh century BC. So, so that's something that people should always keep in mind, that there are some similar words like Fanku and the house of Fanku that are found in the, um, the tale of Sinuhi, which is an ancient Egyptian legend dating to about the 19th century BC perhaps, or perhaps the 18th century BC. Now, that tale and that word Fanku doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Phoenicians and no definite connection can be made, although there are some people who want to assert that the two words are connected. The word Phoenician in its Greek form with absolute certainty comes from a, from a Greek word, phoinus, which means blood red. That's what the word means. It means blood red, without a doubt. Now, there's another word for purple, and, and the word for purple is porphyrus, and porphyrus is not, a lot of people want to say, oh, the word Phoenician has to come from the Greek word for, for purple, and that's a lie, because the word for purple is porphyrus. The purple of royalty is never called phoinus. It's always called perforus. I personally would assert that the word Phoenician comes from the word phoinus because it's a translation in the Greek of the word which the Hebrews in Palestine were using of themselves, and that's the word Adam. Uh, it is great. It's uh, oh. having red hair as well. Now, later on in history, the word Phoenician came associated with the with, with the purple dye that they sold. But that does not mean that the word's etymology is found in the color purple. It is not. That's the word porphyrus in Greek. So. If you understand a little about the language, you won't be tricked by the by the um, the Jewish academics who just pull things out of thin air and and want us to believe that the Phoenicians were Canaanites. If you look, I'm sorry, Herodotus just went flying on the floor. If you look at um the archaeology of the coasts of the land later known as Phoenicia. And the history of writing there, you will see that before the Hebrew conquest of the land of Canaan, the extant writing is mostly in cuneiform, but it is not. It's in cuneiform letters that were used by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and other tribes to the east. It is not the Hebrew letters that we know only from after the time of the conquest of Canaan. And it is the Hebrew letters that are the basis for the proto-Hebrew letters that are the basis for the so-called Phoenician alphabet was absolutely Hebrew. And it was the prototype of the alphabet of the Greeks. And the Greeks admit that. 
I guess the uh, prototype of Ogham's script as well and the runes that uh, we ended up with. Uh, Absolutely. Basically, yeah, it was a, a, another alphabet uh, of all of them. Yes, sir. Uh, and you know, one of, I mean, we're saying, you know, they did all these great things, but, you know, they also ended up picking up a lot of the pagan practices of the people that they were with, which is obviously written about in the Bible with um, the Canaanites, and they brought some of these practices through with them into Europe, which is where we get a lot, a lot of um, where we get the term Easter from for Pasha, which goes back to and Ashtar and Ashtaroth and these, these Canaanite gods. So there was a bit of syncretism with that, which, which they brought with them into Europe. But it wasn't right the way in, in Europe because there's very little traces of that in Britain. Uh, and another thing that we see is the hut circles. You were talking about Cornwall earlier. There are traces of hut circles that, that you can see in the ground where they used to have this particular type of um, dwelling that they used to live in. That's obviously not there now, and it's, it's sunk down. You've just got the remains. But apparently they've got exactly the same buildings in Syria and around that area that's also been picked up upon. And they've also got the same uh, stone circles that we have in Britain and across Europe. And they had the, the same uh, the same astronomy and the same horoscopes. And even to this day with the, the um, almanac that we have, the Sailor's Almanac still uses the same uh, horoscope and symbols as the one back then from the Phoenicians, and that they got a lot of this was from, from the Chaldean civilization, which of course is where Abraham was originally from anyway, uh, and it, they gradually made their way west, and then obviously the, the Israelites took over where the where the Canaanites were, and there was just this flourishing of um, knowledge and innovation, and uh, the, the uh, colonizing and the, the Phoenician word for colonize is, uh, is Hebrew, going back to Heber, who was Abraham's grandfather. But there are traces of them all, all around the world that, that can be traced back to this, to this expansion. And to think that um, these, these people were Canaanites, I, it, just, it just it doesn't make sense, especially when you see those Armana letters, which make it really clear that in, in you know, in the, in the 13th century BC, the Canaanites were gone, they were removed, and the whole area was taken over by the tribes of Israel. So that whole Phoenician Golden Age was really an Israelite Golden Age, and, that, and that's been just covered up by the historians. And they try and tell you that these Phoenicians were were Canaanites, and they, you know, there's even some of them that are lamenting the loss of the Canaanites because they think that these people were were actually Canaanites. It's ludicrous to to uh, to see, to be honest. It's hard to actually work out that people can think that. I mean, today I've been looking through, um, I've been looking through Raymond Cap's work, which is explaining the identity side of it, and then. I've been looking through the stuff that they have on, on Wikipedia, and you know, just from looking at Wikipedia, you should be able to work this out. For, and from looking at the um, the establishment stuff, I mean, I mean, that's what you've been bringing up, uh, Bill. Is is the what the historians 
actually said about them, and, and you can just see it from that logically that they, they cannot have been Canaanites. I'm sorry about the squeaky chair. I know it's annoying. But when you look in most, uh, I'm tempted to say all of the popular printings of modern Bibles, the KJV, the NIV, the ASV, I don't care which alphabet you want to use. Um, When you look in these modern Bibles, in practically all of them, at the maps in those Bibles, you will always see the 12 tribes of Israel and their lands kind of pushed inland. And you'll see a a, a swath drawn down the coast of Palestine labeled Phoenicia. And the maps, at a glance, give you the impression that the Israelites of Scripture never got near the coast because the Canaanites had controlled that land. And all of those maps, every single one of them, are a Jew lie and a misrepresentation of the text of the Scripture, which clearly puts the Israelite tribes all up and down the coast. When you read the actual scriptural accounts, Judges 5.17 is quoted in in my essay on the identity of the Phoenicians at Christagenia. And Judges 5.17 is the song of Deborah, which probably dates off the top of my head to about 1380 to 1350 B.C. And the song of Deborah asks, why did Dan remain in ships? And Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. And that word breaches in more modern translations is translated more accurately as inlets, meaning these little havens up and down the coast of the sea. The text of Scripture puts the Israelites in ships and harbors on the Mediterranean. If we look at the Septuagint translation, the the Septuagint version of Scripture, it's even clearer in the conquest of Canaan that the children of Israel, of Asher, of Naphtali, and of Zebulun, had, without a doubt, taken the coastal cities from the Tyrians, the people who dwelt at Utu before the island city was built, and from the other Canaanite tribes, without a doubt. The the histories and the archaeological evidence concerning the Phoenicians has been basically um, molded into a fallacy which gives us the impression that these people were distinct from the Israelites so that we would not Imagine the Phoenician settlers of Europe and, and, and elsewhere to have been the Israelites of Scripture. Because if we imagine that, then we have to understand that the Phoenicians were a people of Aryan stock, and the Jews who want to claim 
that they are the Israelites of Scripture are anything but Aryan. And, and that's what academia, that's what mainstream scholarship has done, was invent pure lies about the Bible and about ancient history in order to uphold an identity claimed by the Jews which does not belong to the Jews. Oh, I think people... Uh... I'm sorry. I, I got one more thing to say in this respect. L.A. Waddell was a professor at um, Oxford University in England in the early 20th century. And he wrote books, The Aryan Origin of the Alphabet, The Aryan Origin of the Civilizations of Tibet, and, and, and uh, I'm paraphrasing the titles, but that's certainly one of them. The British edits linking the, um, the, the stories found in the Icelandic edits to um, similar epics found in, in proto, sort of like proto-Gothic text in, in Britain, in the old Saxon Chronicles and things like that. And he wrote... Um, he wrote a book called The Phoenician Origin of the Bretons. Um, I'm trying to get this right. Uh, of the Bretons, Scots, and Anglo-Saxons, I believe, or, or something similar to that. And the, all of the archaeological evidence that he could find of the Phoenicians in Britain and, and proving that the people of Britain descended from them. And he was so worry of identifying the, the Phoenicians as Israelites, that he took an inscription with the clear letters in Hebrew, G-D, in, in Proto-Hebrew or Phoenician text, which is a clear reference to the tribe of Gad. And it was in that context that it was a tribal word, a tribal reference. He took that in his book, and he insisted that G.D. somehow referred to Hittites because he was upholding the identity of the Jews, which falls apart at the realization that the Phoenicians were Israelites. And that's just one example of absolute academic dishonesty for fear of the Jews. I think uh, most people know that the, the Phoenicians were were white. Uh, I think that that's at, the, that's at the root of it. So they hoped if they were to say that uh, the Phoenicians were Israelites, then it would it would, um, it would cut the Jews out of it entirely. It's quite clear that the, the Jews are closer in physiognomy to Hittites than anything else. It's, it's something I've been seeing a lot of uh, recently. It's these pictures of these these Hittites. And they, and they look exactly like the Jews do today. Yes, they do. The Hittites were pictured as short and, and, and stocky and, and with the large hooked noses that are classical of the Jews and the sloping foreheads. That's how they were pictured in antiquity. The, the, the identity of the Phoenicians as white is absolutely certain throughout all of the ancient Greek writings, there are, there are poems, plays by Euripides and Aeschylus 
about the people of Thebes, famous poems. Euripides wrote Phoenician women, and it was about a war between tribes and, and, and uh, the conquest of the Greek city of Thebes at a time after the legendary Oedipus. And um, Thebes was said to have been founded in all Greek sources by a man named Cadmus the Phoenician. Now, Cadmus himself was said in all Greek legends that, that relate to him to have been a descendant of the famous Heracles. So, Cadmus the Phoenician was pictured to be a descendant of a Greek god who was really a Phoenician. Heracles was really envisioned, even though he was a son of Zeus, envisioned to be a, a Phoenician. And there were many um, intertwining myths, the myth of Dionysius, the legend of um, Perseus saving Andromeda from the sea monster, the legend of the, the great serpent um, Typhon being cast out of heaven by Zeus. All of these Greek myths go back to the Levant and to Palestine, where they were, were placed where the events surrounding the myths were placed by the Greeks. So, so I'm getting a, a little off track, but not only the islands all up and down the Asian coast and, and around Greece were settled by the Phoenicians, according to Greek legends, but also much of the Greek mainland. Thebes, the Phoenician city, was on the Greek mainland. And wherever these... Phoenicians are described, whether it be in Phoenician Women by Euripides or the famous play Seven Against Thebes by Aeschylus. These were tragic poets of the 5th century BC, and they always described the Phoenicians as fair and as blonde, red-headed or golden-haired. However you want to see it, they were white. Well, that would fit in with the uh, with the name for them as well. And it's, it's a bit ridiculous to think that uh, they were named after an you know, obscure snail that you could get a purple dye from. I mean, there probably weren't that many of these snails around. And you can make purple anyway um, by mixing two two other colours together. I think uh, blue and red. So uh, I'm I'm not so um, certain that. Uh, that's where the name came from. I think you're right there that uh, the the name comes from the, the colour of them. And uh, what I was seeing today was is that they were described as having red hair and and blue eyes. They were a, a, a Celtic people. And of course, the the, the oldest um, records in Britain, uh, the chronicles of of England, say that uh, Britain was originally um, peopled by people from. Syria, and then after that, it was from Brutus of Troy, and, and yeah, that that's, originates with with Phoenicia, and that's why we have these Phoenician coins. It's why we have all the mine workings around Cornwall and Wales, and that, that's exactly as you as you say. It can't have been the the City Isles; it had to have been um, Cornwall that it was talking about, because there there was a huge trade that that went on between the 
east and the west, taking the, the, the tin and the metals from there. And I think that Cornish tin has been found as, as far afield as, as India. And I mean, that's another thing is, is the, the Sanskrit can be traced back to the same original language as well. We've got words that are the same in Sanskrit that are still pretty similar today. And, and in Roman and, and in, in Welsh, and all, these, all these words are, are similar. I think um, Dio is one of them, Deo, Diva, Deus, and all words for, for God, which, which can go back to, link back to Zeus, to Zeus another name. Now, I, I can't think of the name of the, the, the um, historian, but I think there was a Phoenician historian who actually linked the gods of the Greeks with um, with the 12 tribes of Israel. And I think he, he said um, uh, Jove was, was Judah and, and Kronos you, you can be transliterated to um, uh, Jacob Israel. I think, I'm not sure if you're, you're aware of that. I can't think of the name of the historian because I haven't come across it today, but I, I've read it before. Uh, and that sort of links into these, to these Greek myths that you were saying about that have their origination in the Levant. I think a lot of them are talking about the exploits of, of the Israelite people because they did, they, they did add, add mythological aspects to it as, as time went on. They, they would elaborate on things and that, you know, that's where we get our, our, uh, our folklore from. I did, there's one particular instance which I thought was quite a good one. I, I suspect um, uh, most of the listeners are aware of the story of... Um, Zara putting his hand out of the womb first and there being a, a scarlet thread tied around his wrist so that they could see that he was the one that first um, put his hand out of the womb. And obviously, um, uh, Farah's was actually born first, but it was Zara that put his hand first, so he, he should have had the birthright. Now, there's the heraldry for Ulster, which is uh, a red hand on a hexagram, and the hexagram is the, is the sixth... Um, uh, six counties of the kingdom, and the red hand is a symbolism of this of this red scarlet cord. But that's not the story that's come down to us. It's the story that's come down to us in the folklore that surrounds it now is that there was this fierce warrior chieftain, and he was having a race with another um, enemy warrior chief, and in order to win and pass the finishing line first, he cut his hand off and threw it through the finishing line. Now, it's a, a two totally different stories, but you can see in that story that it traces right back to Farah's hand going out first, because he won. He won, he won the birthright because his hand was put out of the womb first. Even though he wasn't born first, his, his hand was there first. So you can see that story. So it's been elaborated on. I mean, I don't think there really was a warrior chieftain that, that cut his hand off and, and threw it in this mythical race. But it, that goes back to an actual thing that did happen, which is with the two twins in the womb, and it being very important to know which was the, the first one um, to, to see the world or to be part of the world, to enter the world, which was even if it was only, only his hand. But there, there's a lot of things like that, I think, where we have real-life events, and when the people would record them, they, they would add these folklore bits to it or they would add descriptive words to it that would help them to remember because a lot of this stuff was memorized and it wasn't written down and they need to have mnemonic ways of, of, 
of remembering it. So they, they would add bits to it to make it more colourful. Of course, it comes down to us now that there were superhuman feats that these people were doing, like, like the trials of, of Hercules or um, a lot of these mythical things. It's like when you look at the, uh, the, the guy that founded Athens, Keycops, if you see a picture of him, he's got a serpent's tail as if he's this, this um, half aquatic sea monster thing but the thing thing was with a serpent's tail or, or with a dragon that was that was a symbol of kingship um, the old word for four dragon or the head king in britain was pendragon the head dragon like, uh, king arthur pendragon or pendragon uh, it, so it wasn't actually a real dragon but his symbol of royalty was was a dragon so and it was a set that goes but right the way back to key crops or Cal Cole, the uh, grandson of, of Judah, and he's pictured like that just to show that he was royalty. It doesn't mean that he was a he was a real dragon. But I think that so many of these these myths that, that have come down to us, people will just rubbish them and say, oh, they're just fantasy. But they they all point to the truth. It's like there's, there's there's no smoke without a fire. So it's uh, interesting that all of this. This, the um, Greek stuff actually did come from what would have become known to us now as, uh, as the Phoenicians, and there's, there's even um, direct, direct mythical bits. If you read the, it's not the non-canonical book of Jasher, and it talks about the tribes of um, Israel and that, and it goes into the detail of them, and they've all got these sort of superhuman mythical-like attributes. I think Naphtali can run like a hind, and can fly over the top of the corn. And, you know, you can sort of imagine like one in one of these samurai films where they there are wires and they fly across this court. You know, it's obviously not possible, but he, you know, he's saying that he was a really fit and and health, healthy healthy man. And you see that in all our area myths. You, if you look at go right to the um, the Indian stuff, going through to the Greek stuff, they're all talking about these these half god, half human beings, as super people. And you know, and I think the the twelve tribes, the chiefs of the twelve tribes, the patriarchs, you know, they were blessed by God. They they, they did have these, uh, you know, they magical attributes, but they would have been incredibly fit, and they would have been incredibly intelligent as well. They, they would have had really good, really good genes. I think that was part of the reason. Well, and obviously, it wasn't just a, a blessing, but you know, they were told not to mix with these other nations, otherwise they would lose their inheritance. And your genetic inheritance is, is so important. It was obviously important to them back then, and that's something um, that I think people are just starting to remember again now. It's just how important your uh, your genes are. Well, well, we would like to hope that enough of them are, because most of us are throwing our genetic heritage away, or if we happen to marry somebody suitable, it's usually by mistake or by chance rather than by design. That that seems to be the way the world is gone, and, and certainly is. You, you would men, I want to clear up this word Syria, because um, it, it's important to clear this word up in relation to the Phoenicians. The modern use of the word Syria it is basically come down to us from the ancient Roman province and what they named a lot of land which was never considered Syria. And, and, and it was actually in the Hebrew Bible, most of it was considered Aram, 
But Aram and Syria are not synonymous. Aram was the name of a notable tribe related to the Hebrews, which dwelt in Damascus and points north and east of Damascus, and not really in any great numbers along the coast, as most people may think. The, um, the word Syria actually comes from the same word that the word Tyre in relation to the famous ancient city comes from. The word in Hebrew which described the ancient city of Tyre is a word with a Hebrew letter called a tzaddy, and, and it's spelled, you got to look in your Strong's Concordance and find this letter, it's spelled T-S-A-D-I in English is the name of the letter, and it represents a T-S sound that oftentimes in English we kind of say as a Z, which is why in the King James Bible you will see Sidon, S-I-D-O-N, in, in a lot of places, and you will see Zidon, Z-I-D-O-N, in a lot of places. And that's because they couldn't really make their mind up how they were going to represent this Hebrew letter, which was a T-S sound, when they transliterated names. So the Greeks did not have a T-S letter either. Actually, the Phoenicians did, but when the, when the alphabet made it to Greece, they probably said the hell with that letter and threw it out. And I wouldn't blame them because it's hard to pronounce. So this T-S letter was actually the first letter of the name of ancient Tyre, which in Hebrew um, would be, we would spell it T-S-O-R, Tisor. Now, the Greeks got two words out of that. And the first word was Taurus. T-U-R-O-S. And that was the name for the ancient city of Tyre. That is how it appears in the Septuagint. And the Greeks took another word from that same Hebrew word, Sorus, S-U-R-O-S. And they applied that word to the land around the ancient city. And they did that, getting those two words out of, um, out of the one Hebrew word in, in many of the ancient Greek writings reflect that. So we usually, in English, see Taurus and translate it as Tyre, T-Y-R-E, as it appears usually in modern Bibles. But sometimes it is Tyrus, T-Y-R-U-S, in the King James. And we see that word Saurus in the Greek, and we write Syria. But they both came from the ancient Hebrew name for the city of Tyre. And in ancient times, Syria was never known as Syria. But Tesaurus, or Tesor, T-S-O-R, was the name of the city and its possession on the mainland. So I just wanted to clear that up, that when you see um, Syrian in, in ancient Greek records or elsewhere, that that, when 
said in relationship with the settlement of the Mediterranean is a reference to the great city of Tyre, without a doubt. Now, I was uh, wondering that the, the, uh, where, the, where the Tyre came from. I was wondering if it was anything to do with Tyr. There's a, I think there's a, a Celtic god that's spelled similar, T-U-R or T-Y-R. I think it's spelled Tyr, but I'm not quite sure what, what that pronounced Tyr. I'm not, not quite certain of that. Uh, it obviously doesn't come from there. I've been saying it here for most of my life, but if you read um, Kipling and some of the ancient, some of the older English poets, I should say, they rhymed the word so that you would pronounce it as tire, T-Y-R-E. That, that's, Kipling rhymes it with fire. So, so he has to be pronouncing it as tire. If you read um, recessional, I think is a good example, which is in this Kipling poem. It doesn't have anything to do with Assyria, does it? Because often hear people that are from Syria are claiming that they they they're the remnants of the Assyrians. It's, right. it's a completely different. Um, origination from the word Assyria, isn't it? Right. The Syrians should never be confused with the Assyrians, and, and that's because the word Syria comes from the word Tyre, so Saurus and Taurus in ancient Greek times both had to refer to the Phoenicians of the coast, where the inland people were Aramaean or Aram, of the tribe of Aram. And, and they're mentioned in Genesis 10 as relatives of Abraham and the Hebrews. So Aram, that's what they called themselves, and they came to um, dominate Babylon, and for that reason, the Babylonian records are, are very often um, written in Aramaic, which also became... The lingua franca, or, or the language of trade and commerce and diplomacy, during the time of the Persian Empire as well as the Babylonian. So Aramean, it is um, the language of the inland people of Syria, of Damascus and, and the Chaldees and, and the other um, <coughs> divisions of the tribe of Aram. Where um, the Assyrians are actually the tribe of Asher from Genesis chapter 10, and they were in Sumer and Akkad and, and cities in, in northern Mesopotamia, and they're not to be confused with Syrians. However, the Assyrians... And the Syrians were, were indeed confused as early as Strabo. Strabo made the same mistake. So that's an ancient mistake, without a doubt. Yeah, I think uh, King uh, Cyrus claims to be of the house of Aram, doesn't he? I think in his, um, on that cylinder of Cyrus, he says he's from the, from the house of Aram. And I think the, the Greeks... Uh, saw them as the Archimedes, 
dynasty, and that, and that was a, that was the same thing. And they're known as being being white. So even though Aramaic today, you know, people would say, oh, that's a, an early Arabic dialect. It wasn't originally. It, it was a it was a white language because it was. Um, the Achaemenid language, King Cyrus's language. I'm not, uh, I, it was the language of Cyrus because in the time of Cyrus, it was the language of trade and diplomacy. I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to relating Cyrus to Aram, but Arabic is a bastardized descendant, more or less, of Aramaic. There, there's um, should be little doubt that Arabic is related to Aramaic and to Hebrew, but because Aramaic is just really a, a, a more distant dialect of, of Hebrew. But Arabic's a bastard language, and, and the alphabet it is absolutely alien to anything that was, that was either ancient Hebrew or ancient Aramaic. It, it's... Um, you know, people should see the Arabs for what they are. The word Arab in Hebrew relating to people means to be of mixed blood. To, to, um, the verb means to grow dark. And, and with people, there's really only one way to do that. And that's why the Arabs are called Arabs. But in, in ancient times, most of the... Um, most of the tribes that became known or mingled in with what's, what, what are now Arabs were actually white and, and were related to the Hebrews and the Aramaeans. It uh, gets translated as, um, sorry, go on. Well, I just want to interject that Arabic is what it is because the bearers of the language are bastards. So very confusing. It gets translated as, as mixed multitude when you see the word in the Bible, and it, it should be an, an Arab multitude. Yeah, that that word is the word Arab, which shows how the term was used in the ancient world. The tribes of um, the Arabs were tribes of various peoples of mixed genealogy. <laughs> The uh, land itself was, was named after the people as well. It wasn't that the, the, the Arabs were named after this piece of land that was called Arabia. The, the land itself was named after the people there, and the people that lived there were, were mixed people, right. darkened people. Right. As you say, it, it, when, you, when you look into the history of the word, you know, it, 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 it's, it's very interesting when you, when you do look into the history of words because you get the full meaning of it, because you just the... Just the meaning mixed doesn't really doesn't do it justice. I mean, when you look into it, it, it and it's like the darkening of, of the evening, and as, as the daylight gets darker, you know, it just conveys that feeling of, of somebody gradually going darker. You know, yeah, it's quite. I think it's fascinating looking at um, these old words that were actually used. And you think they, they probably didn't have um, so many words in their language as as we have today. So the words that they, that they did have had um, more of a deeper meaning to them, I find, looking into them, especially one, one like that, looking at the history of that word. The, the um, Arabia, it, it's actually um, an odd story. 
it, it was called Arabia by the Hebrews because of the mixed groups of, of nomads and bandits that, that dwelt there. And the people that dwelt there were seen as caravan robbers and, and pillagers of the towns on the outskirts of civilization at that time, which was centered in Samaria and Jerusalem on that end of the peninsula anyway. And, and um, when the Romans came along, they maintained the word Arab, and, and that's where we get Arabia from. But the Romans called it Felix Arabia. And I don't know if it could ever be told exactly why, but Felix Arabia means happy Arabia. And it could be because it's certain that rivers used to cross that land in, in, in perhaps 2,000 years ago, that Arabia was at one time more, um, more fertile and more fruitful than it is today. And the scripture certainly indicates that because these nomads were keepers of herds, which is probably difficult to do in a desert that was only sand. The, um, the name Felix Arabia, if I had to guess, I would think that it came from the concept that the Romans had of the people, that they really didn't work, but they lived simply off the land, off their herds, and by robbing and raiding others, and for that reason that they were, they were satisfied, because they got away with that for centuries and centuries. That those um, Canaanite and Edomite tribes... They were caravan robbers and pillagers and, and devourers of civilization. I think that they, in my opinion, are, are who the Romans called the peninsula Felix Arabia after, or Happy Arabia. I, I'm not, I really can't put my finger on it from a, from a historical reference. Not yet, but that, that's my conjecture. Our land definitely seems to become cursed and become desolate once people are race mixed. If you look at Arabia and you look at the, the desert lands there now and around that area, it used to be lush and fertile, and now it is the land is is desolate. And it, I, I just um, remember one of the other things I, I discovered today while I was looking into this is what, what some of these these towns that um, had the Canaanites in them. You get, like uh, there's one called Ugarit that wasn't actually occupied by the Israelites. It had uh, the Canaanites in them, and in the foundations of the buildings they put human sacrifices. So you would actually sacrifice a human uh, and put it into the foundations of the house. And in the temple they found all these jars with these infants in them, this infant sacrifice. And so these people were really wicked people and the evil people these Canaanites were. Yeah, this is why they, they, the Israelites were ordered to wipe them out entirely. Yeah, I mean, we see what they do today with the, the snuff films and, and the pornography and the drugs and the way that and the usury, everything that's wicked, can, can be traced back to these people. And you, you, and, you know, they, they can find it in, just through the archaeology. I mean, you imagine that, you're digging up, you know, an old archaeology in the, or an old village and, and you come across traces of human sacrifices and infant sacrifice is what is what they were doing because you know so a lot of people will try and say that oh, it was a genocide what a wicked god what a genocidal god telling his people to do that 
you know, he's getting rid of this evil and this wickedness from the earth. And, and the Israelites failed at that. And that's why we have all the problems today that we have with the Jews. It, it's, it's, it's simply down to that. They failed in their task. They ended up in, interbreeding with them. Some of them did. They ended up not putting them out of the land entirely. And instead, they ended up being expelled from their land. And we've ended up now with, with our lands full of strangers, with strangers running our government, strangers running our banks. You know, everything that we were told would happen, all these curses that would happen if we, if we disobeyed God's law have happened to us. And, and we could, you know, it can be traced right back to them. It's the same people, these Canaanites, the same people. Look at the pictures of the, of the Hittites. They're exactly the same as the Jews today. You know, there's nobody else that has that, that nose. There's nobody else that has the profile of the Jew, apart from these Hittites that you look at when you, when you look, look in, uh, at the, the depictions of them from history. Uh, it's quite striking, actually, these, these pictures of, of these Hittites. It's, it's, it's insulting sometimes because because of the people who think that um, they, they know that that's, that's a Jew, sometimes you'll see it um, subtitled Israelite. It's obviously not an Israelite, it's a Hittite. You know, that, that's a Hittite profile. And that's, you know, it's striking actually, the, the, the way that today's Jews look like these Hittites. I know people say they're, that they're Khazars, but apparently the Khazars can trace themselves back to Edom and, and Mount Sinai. And obviously, he, he saw married Hittites. He married daughters of Heth, these Canaanites. So, so the, the Edomites, the Khazars, today's Jews, they all have that, that Hittite look to them. And that's what identifies them, them physically. I find that's the, the, the um, biggest identifier for me, anyway, is, is, is this profile. Well, well, the bottom line is that when we when we accept the Jewish tales concerning the Old Testament, then we basically turn our heritage over to the Jews and make ourselves into accursed people. Another lesson I, I hope that um, people get out of this program in the future is that Northern Europe and Britain and, and the Isles of the Northern Sea especially have a clear, absolute, undeniable connection to the Phoenicians and the people of ancient Palestine. And, and to imagine that they just popped up out of the ice out of nowhere it is to accept a real Jewish lie. So... That, that's um, that, that's how I would I would like to close this program. And and if you have any closing remarks, be my guest. I'm sure we'll be um, touching on this same topic again in the future. Well, I will just add to what you just said there. I mean, it's totally illogical to think we popped out of the ice. I mean, we had to start it off somewhere that was fertile and and conducive to living, and then we would have made our way tested ourselves by making our way further north and, and to the areas where it's harder to survive and, and, and being the people that we are we can survive anywhere and we're the only race that can do that you know we can survive no matter what the temperature is no matter what the conditions you know we've got that with us to, to survive and build colonies and build civilization so it, it just seems illogical to me to think that we began in the north anyway I think that's, that's only a very 
recent idea that people have had because our oldest historians say that, that we came from the Summerland, and the, the Chronicles of England, it says that the first uh, colonizers to Britain came from Syria, from, from this king, King Dungi, I think is one, one of the names he's given, Diocletian that calls him in, in, in the brute, which is obviously a, uh, a Latinized version of that name. But then you've got um, Brutus of Troy, again, from the Summerlands that, that came to Britain. And then you've got the, uh, the Greek historians, and you've got the Roman historians. You know, they all say that, that Europe was only inhabited on the coasts and barely inhabited at all before the people came over from the Summerland. So this idea that, that we sprung up in the north is, you know, it's, it's not logical. And it's not logical that, that we came out of Africa either. Yeah, we, we were descended from Zegros. It, it's asinine, and it gives the pagans a reason to reject God, to reject the true God and the true story of the history of our white race. Yeah, it's just convenient for them, isn't it? It's convenient for people to think that. They're always trying to take the easy route. You know, there's not many people that take go in by the straight gate. You know, they would always much rather go by the by the easy route and be seekers of smooth things. But you know, that that's that's not the right way to be. You know, we've got to we've got to go in by the straight gate and take the bull by the horns and and follow the truth, no matter where it leads us, even if it's unpalatable. You know, we've got to follow the truth. Absolutely. That's what we endeavor to do here. Thank you for joining me, Sven. Praise Yahweh. And, and we'll be in two weeks. Good night.